Thank you, children. Good to be singing praise to the Lord as our children gather in the front of the sanctuary to join us in praising the Lord. Speaking of children, let me ask you to open your Bibles to Colossians, the third chapter. Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We look at these passages here in Colossians and then in Ephesians one last time this morning. Linda and I will be uh, leaving very quickly after the sermon, I'm going up to, uh, to Hickson to uh, participate in their uh, worship service this morning in order to uh, uh, baptize uh, the little uh, boy born to uh, Aaron and Michelle self. So I know some of you know Aaron and Michelle and um, we will have the privilege of doing that later on this morning. But now let me ask you to uh, look with me at these two verses. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. And then if you would turn back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we look once more at these verses, um, we pray again that you would give us uh, the supernatural ability to handle properly the word of truth and what is spoken here that is according to that truth. May it indeed prove to be a seed planted in good soil that bears an abundant harvest. And that which is spoken here that is not according to your truth. Forgive the one who speaks. Do not allow his words to cause your people confusion. Father, may you be honored. May you be praised. May your name be lifted up on high. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. That's it? (laughs) That's all the advice Paul can offer to parents about raising children? Well, actually, as we've just seen in the parallel portion of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul teaches that Parents are to be concerned to see that children do what is right by honoring and obeying them so that they may be blessed by God. And furthermore, fathers are instructed not to exasperate their children, but instead to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And that's it. Of course, as I've told you more times than some of you care to remember. That's it. I mean, that's what Paul tells parents 
in the light of everything else he has written. In the light of all that I have said to you, if you will, the Apostle Paul says to us, in the light of all that I have said to you, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So let's take a moment and just remember very quickly some of the things Paul writes in Colossians prior to writing Colossians 3.21. Open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Before we get to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, what has Paul written? Look at Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. First, remember who his audience is. Look at, look at chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Paul tells us that he is writing to people whom Christ has rescued from the dominion of darkness, has brought into the kingdom of the Son, has redeemed from the curse and power of sin those for whom he has paid the penalty for their sins through the shedding of his blood on Calvary's cross. And, and who is this? Who, who is this one who has died so that others might live? Look at chapter 1, verse 16. He is the one by whom and for whom they were made. So look at verses 21 and 22. Paul writes to people who were once alienated from God and were enemies in their minds because of their evil behavior, but now... He has reconciled them. God has reconciled them to himself by Christ's physical body through death in order that he might present them to himself holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So obviously, one of the questions that has to be asked before we wrestle at length about what about. Paul's specific instructions to parents and to, to fathers in particular, is Paul writing to you? Because he's not just writing to anyone. He's writing to the people we've just described. This is not general advice for a general audience. This is specific advice for a specific audience. So is he writing to you? He's writing to people who, by grace, through faith, have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. And unless Jesus is your Savior and Lord, what Paul writes, it may sound good, but it's probably going to make very little difference in your life. But if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then these are the words of the living God. And for you, that means not only are they instructive, they're also empowering this is how God would have you to live, which means this is the life that he created you to live, which means this is the life that he saved you to live, which means this is the life that he will empower you to live by grace through faith. How would he have you live? Look at chapter 3, verse 1, Colossians 3, verse 1. Paul writes, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 5. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is in fact idolatry. And get rid of, he says, look at verse 8, get rid of such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. And then in verses 9 and 10, he tells you to take off the old self and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. 
And then look at verse 12. Verse 12, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, and therefore clothe yourselves with compassion and with gentleness and with humility and with, uh, with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And now look at verse 13. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then he says in verse 14, And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And, and then he calls upon you in verses 15 and 16 to be at peace and to be thankful and to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, which should produce within you, Paul teaches, a deep and sincere gratitude to God who has not left you in darkness, but he has caused his truth to, to blaze before you, illuminating for you your path. And therefore, he says in verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you do it all. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I hurry through those verses. I did that a few weeks ago in regards to another portion of these uh, teachings that Paul gives us in Colossians 3 and 4 and in Ephesians 5 and 6. I looked at those verses because we have to understand those are the people to whom Paul is speaking when he gives these terse little words of instruction. These are the people. These are the parents, these are the fathers to whom Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 21, these are the people to whom Paul says, don't embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now clearly, obviously, as we talked about last week at some length, Paul is telling fathers, you've got to practice what you preach. If you want your children to obey you, to honor you, to do what is right in God's eyes, to, to please the Lord, to be assured of his blessing, then you must be a man, you must be a woman, you must be a parent who provides for your children living examples of what it means to obey and honor the Lord. question here very quickly, very quickly, and I can, only, I can only comment upon this in passing. So what about homes in which there is no father present? Where there's a father present, but he's not interested in assuming his God-given responsibilities. In such situations, we must do what we can, obviously, to encourage the man to realize who he is, that he's a man created by God and for God, and to point him to Jesus as the one by whom he can be rescued from sin's curse and power so that he is able to live as an image bearer of Christ and, and therefore to do those things that are right and pleasing to the Lord, such as bringing his children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And, and by the way, just again, almost by way of a footnote, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells wives whose husbands are unbelievers to, to encourage their husbands, not by nagging them, but by living before them godly lives, lives characterized by, uh, by godly behavior, but by a, by a gentle and, and quiet spirit, by, by an inner beauty that, that reflects God's goodness and love and grace. And in some 
cases, members of the covenant community will have the opportunity and privilege to serve as surrogate parents for children whose parents, and especially whose dads, are either absent from the home or or negligent of their responsibilities. But the general pattern is that general truth that Paul sets before us here in Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now, allow me to make one further observation. Turn you, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We need to understand that our living conditions as Americans, our living conditions make it especially difficult to bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. We are wonderfully blessed, and the blessings that are ours are a challenge. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, Moses calls upon God's covenant people to teach their children the ways of the Lord. How? When? Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. We talked about all of that at some length last week. But now notice the warning that Moses gives beginning in verse 10. Look at this. Look at this warning beginning in verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We live in such a land. We are prosperous beyond the imagination of most people living upon this earth. We eat and are satisfied. And therefore, Moses warns us, the Lord speaking through Moses warns us, we're tempted to forget the Lord. Sure, sure, sure. He promises to deliver us from sin's curse and power, but... Who needs rescuing? I mean, I'm serious. Who needs rescuing? I mean, surely our lives aren't so desperate that we need to be rescued. I mean, if the truth be told, those things the Scripture calls sin, they're fun, they're they're enjoyable, they're exciting. I mean, you know, it's a little bit like as if we lived in a garden and we were surrounded by trees bearing fruit, fruit that appears good for food, and is obviously pleasing to the eye, and and is desirable for gaining wisdom. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, who needs a God who promises to meet only our basic needs? All All he promises us is bread to eat, A change of clothing on our back and a roof over our heads. And we've already got far more than what God is offering. So who needs him? Well, it can be easy for our children 
to assume that God is not a necessary or important part of their lives because they've got everything they need. I've never been without. I have never wanted for anything. You know, in fact, especially when you're young, I mean, God gets in the way of of living the life you want to live. Does. Been there and done that. God's ways and the ways of this world are in conflict with one another. And God's ways, God's ways seem to suggest some sort of delayed satisfaction, some sort of pie in the sky by and by. While what this world is offering is an immediate slice of the pie, piled high with ice cream and covered with the most delicious sauces you can possibly imagine. That's the world we live in. It makes it tough. Makes it tough to direct our children's attention away from the things of the world and train them to focus upon Christ. And we know it makes it tough because it's tough for us. It's tough for us. To turn our attention away from the things of this world and to focus upon Christ. It's tough for us. It's tough for us to do what we want our children to do. Which ought to provoke some honest conversations between parents and children. And not just a bunch of piety as if you were speaking from Mount Sinai, because you're not. And again, should underline the importance of parents providing children with a living example of what it means to love the Lord with all of one's heart and soul and strength and mind, and to love others as you have been loved. Look again at Ephesians 6.4. Look again at Ephesians 6.4. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So what is the training and instruction of the Lord? Training. Now these things are not hard and fast. These are general observations. But in general, training seems to suggest some form of physical discipline... And instruction seems to suggest some form of verbal teaching. Training seems to, in general, suggest some form of physical discipline. And instruction seems to suggest some form of verbal teaching. So, first of all, children are to be trained. That is, they are to be disciplined. We are about to move into the area of non-PC. In case we're confused by what the Bible means by discipline, turn to Hebrews 12. If you're confused by what the Bible means by discipline, turn to Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews tells us 
Look at Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. Writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, that the Lord, look at verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Verse 6, that is, he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And that language just gets all over us. It doesn't fit our pattern of life or thinking one iota. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 makes it clear that this discipline is not pleasant, but in fact painful. (laughs) While at the same time we're told that it is the discipline that produces a harvest of righteousness. You see that in verse 11. It is this discipline that produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now now look back at verse 9. Here again, we've got one of those general truths. Look back at verse 9. We have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Okay, two quick observations. One, again, the scripture is speaking in general terms. Not everyone's had a father. And not everyone has a father who has disciplined him. And not everyone has a father whom he has respected. But the majority of Jewish people, the people to whom the book of Hebrews is being written, had fathers. Fathers they respected and fathers who disciplined them. And two, even though, the descript- even though Scripture describes discipline as being painful, Scripture obviously, when you read Scripture in the context of Scripture, Scripture is not promoting child abuse at any level whatsoever, but at the same time, Scripture is not in step with our modern teachings and ideas The the idea that corporal punishment is not only wrong, it is in fact harmful. That is sheer gobbledygook. It's a very technical term. It's gobbledygook because the scripture could not disagree more. You have to decide. You have to decide where true truth is to be found. Scripture teach, clearly teaches the use of corporal punishment. Proverbs 22, verse 15, we're told that folly is bound. Just listen. Proverbs 22, 15, we're told that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 29, 15 teaches that the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. And in Proverbs 13, verse 24, we are told that he who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is careful to discipline him. These passages are obvious in their meaning. Not only are we to physically discipline our children, we're also to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Just look at, I can't take the time to read, but look at, turn to Proverbs 4. Just let your eye run over verses 1 through 9. Look at Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 9. Children are called upon to heed their father's instruction and not to forsake his teaching. Now, now, now where, do we, where do we as parents, as fathers, gain such wisdom and knowledge that God would call upon our children, don't forsake Your father's instructions don't forsake your father's teachings. Well, John chapter 17, just listen. John chapter 17, 
When Jesus prays for his disciples, he prays in verse 17 that God would sanctify them, that is, that God would set them apart, that he would equip and empower them to carry out his holy purposes in this world. God calls upon the Father to sanctify his people. How? By the truth, that is, by the word of truth, If we are to provide our children with the instruction they need, the wisdom they require, the sound learning and teaching that will profoundly impact, shape, and bless their lives, then we must be people of the Word. For it is here that God reveals to us true truth. It is here. From the pages of Holy Scripture that we are given true truth about God, about ourselves, about sin, about justice, about His mercy, about His grace, about His love. It is here that we find the good news concerning the gospel of the kingdom. It is here that our King instructs us concerning how we should live as citizens of His kingdom. It is here that we learn the tasks to which the King has called us. And it is here that we discover that not only does He save us, embrace us, and call us His own, He also equips and empowers and enables us to live as he would have us to live. It is this God-breathed word that Paul tells us in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 16. It is this God-breathed word that is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Work. We are to discipline our children and we are to teach them the truths of God's Word. Okay, so what does that look like? This discipline and training and, and teaching of children. Well, I'm going to share with you something I've shared with many of you before. I want to share with you the pattern that we use most often in our home. And I do that with these two caveats. Listen to me. First of all, I'm not offering you a cookie cutter here. I'm not suggesting this is the way everyone ought to do it. I'm offering you a general pattern that can be followed in the disciplining of one's children. And secondly, I want it understood. I know. I'll say this upon the best of authority. Experience, I know that not all children are the same. We raised six. They are all disciplined. They were all disciplined in, in significantly different ways, in ways that hopefully fit their particular personalities, in ways that fit their particular levels of humility or arrogance. So with those two caveats in place, allow me to share with you the pattern that we followed. First, first of all, we expected, first of all, we expected our children to do what they were told the first time they were told to do it. Strange idea, isn't it? We expected our children to do what they were told the first time they were told to do it. We expected them to do it. You can train your children to obey the first time you speak, or you can train them to know that 
that you aren't serious until you've repeated what you until you've said what you're saying five or six times, or, or until the level of uh, of you know the level of your voice has, has reached a, a certain level here. I mean, either way, you're training them. And as soon as we were con- confident that our child understood the instructions that he or she was was being given and that they could consciously decide whether or not they would do as they were instructed if they disobeyed, we slapped their wrist. Not not so hard as to injure them, but hard enough to get their attention. It usually made them cry. How old were they? Now, you can't tell anybody I said this. How old were they when we started to do that? They were less than a year old. I know, I know, I know, I know. Don't come up and talk to me about this. Everyone tells you that isn't right. I'm telling you those people are wrong. Those people are wrong. I read something the other day where some guy wrote that you cannot begin to teach children the difference between right and wrong until they're almost three years old. You wait until they're almost three years old, it's too late and it's all over and you lost. Based upon scripture, based upon experience, and I would be so bold, I would be so bold as to say to you, the proof is in the pudding. As soon as we believed the child was ready to hear and understand verbal instruction, as soon as we felt there was, we could carry on at least somewhat of a significant conversation, I would take a child in need of discipline back to my bedroom and there we would have that conversation. And I would ask the child to verbalize what they had done wrong. And I would then ask them if they loved me. And then I would ask them, well, if you love me, because, you know, almost always the child's going to respond, yes, daddy, I love you. So, you know, if you ask them if you love you and they say, I love you, then I would ask them why they would choose to do what was displeasing to me. And then I would ask them if they loved God. And if they did, why would they do what they knew was displeasing to him? I wanted them to understand that in disobeying me or in disobeying Linda or in dishonoring me or in dishonoring their mother, they were disobeying and dishonoring the Lord. Then they would be punished. Most often they would be spanked. They always preferred to have Linda spank them. But I did most of the spanking. And then I would take them into my arms and I would pray with them. And I would remind them of how Jesus was punished for their sins. And I would encourage them to ask for God's forgiveness. And I would assure them, assure them of my forgiveness. And then I would assure them, this is so important to me, I would assure them that this particular event and episode was over. Their disobedience had been addressed and punished and now it was past history. And I would hug them 
And I would kiss them. And I would send them on their way. And we were done. No drawn out punishments. No lingering consequences. It was over and done with. And now I want to tell you something that you may find frustrating. But I tell you this to challenge some of you with young children still at home, to challenge you to consider carefully what I'm telling you. By the time our children were in their middle teens, we had no rules except the rules of common courtesy. If you were leaving the house, you tell me where you're going, who you're going to be with, and what you're going to be doing, and when you'll be home. And if you can't get home at that time, you call and let me know. In other words, provide for me the sort of information that I give your mother when I leave the house. It's called common courtesy. And it worked. Perfectly? Well, of course not. If you're looking for perfection, you have to wait till the next world. But I want you to know that the teenage years for us were not tumultuous. They were chaotic. But for the most part, they were good. Good. Why? Now hear me. Hear me. Why? Obviously because of God's grace. Two of my sons and I had an extended conversation just a few months ago about my failures as a father. And they were many. But by God's grace, by God's grace, do you love those words? By God's grace, we managed to train and instruct our children so that by the time they were in their middle to late teens, they were ready to assume responsibility for their decisions and actions. Again, I don't tell you all this to frustrate you. I tell you all this to provide you with one example of how to bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And I tell you all of this with this reminder. What you are doing is of eternal importance. You're not just trying to make your home a pleasant and peaceful place in which to live, though obviously that's not a bad thing. But that's not the overriding concern here. You're striving to prepare your children to become vessels that God can fill with his Holy Spirit and then use to accomplish more good than you can possibly ask or imagine. You are training and teaching your children to do what is right in God's sight to do what is pleasing to him so that he, so that they might know his blessing and be used by him to bless others as he works in and through them to turn this world right side up. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Impress them upon us. Father, may we be your people. May you be our God. May we serve you. And Father, while there are many things that we would pray for our children, 
This we pray above all else. That they would become for you. That they would be used by you as warriors for the cross of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.